Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host as always, and today I am joined by the a co-host, Richard Briette, and uh, we're very pleased to be speaking with Mari Rudy today about her book, The Call of Character, Living a Life Worth Living, uh, Columbia University Press, 2014. Mari Rudy, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our, it's our pleasure. Um, so, Every uh, interview begins with a question more or less along these lines. It's very basic. Um, we want to ask, uh, to begin the interview, what um, prompted um, the writing of this book? Huh, um, a number of things, um, but probably the most important is the fact that I wanted to um, convey some of the academic ideas that I had I had been mulling over for years and writing about more academically. I wanted to convey some of those ideas to um, a broader audience, um, a less academic uh, audience. Um, so this book is a so-called crossover book, um, which means that it's, it's aimed both at academics and non-academics. And um, to my delight, I have found that a lot of therapists and analysts um, are reading it. I keep getting a lot of emails from these types of readers, and that was exactly... Um, the sort of main um, impetus behind the book. Um, I felt like I had something to convey, and that I was tired of. I was tired of just talking to academics, and so I wanted to reach a, a larger audience. Yeah. Well, that that um, goes along with something that we both, uh, an experience we both had reading the book. Um, that it seems to be a book that has been written by someone who's undergone an analysis. Um, <laughs> Not that we're asking you to tell us if that's the case, but we just wanted wanted to share with you that this is definitely an impression that one comes away with. Uh, yes, and you're right. Um, I have undergone actually two analyses, and uh, I think one of the things we that makes that. me kind of yeah. I'm, <laughs> what we love that we're both <laughs> we love to hear that. <laughs> Um, one of the things I think that makes me sort of distinctive among academic uh, psychoanalytic writers is precisely the fact that I'm very interested on the clinical side of psychoanalysis. And th- that's kind of actually hard for me because I, I'm, I'm not trained as a psychoanalyst. So often I feel like I have no basis for saying half the things I'm saying because, you know, who am I to say anything analytic since I haven't been trained? At the same time, I have a keen interest in the, um, in the clinical side and I, I keep reading clinicians, and when I, even when I read someone like Lacan, whom a lot of people in my field are reading, I tend to read him more clinically than most of my colleagues, which is one reason that I end up with different ideas about Lacan than, than many of my Lacanian academic colleagues. So, yes, uh, you definitely um, picked up the right um, vibe there. Oh, well, this, this is very, it's very exciting, um, and I, I, would, I would say this, um, that, of course, uh, one's analysis is the basis for one's um, clinical thinking. So um, your idea that, uh, you know, who are you since you haven't been trained? Mm-hmm. Um, we would certainly, uh, I think both Richard and I would, would challenge that and say, um, you know what? <laughs> you've, ha- you've had undergone two analyses. Um, that gives you uh, clinical savvy um, beyond, uh, beyond reading books. Um, so one thing that we also wondered is, you know, the question that came up, like, is this book, um, the end product of a cure uh, at some level. I mean, because it, it, it reads or it, it read to us that way, like, wow, this is a beautiful um, uh, way of conceiving of oneself and uh, one's relationship to others that struck us as this is, the, uh, this is what a good analysis um, mm-hmm. can bring or can produce. Mm-hmm. Do you care to comment ab- about that? <laughs> that is really wonderful. Thank you for saying that. Um, I never thought of it that way, but now that you say it, um, I, I, ha, huh, that's really interesting. I, <laughs> I probably would not have been able to write that book um, had I not um, 
undergone a good analysis, good in the sense that um, it kind of transformed my life. And I mean, that's one reason I had been drawn to psychoanalysis as a theory for all these years. Um, I'm kind of a quote-unquote believer because um, uh, I myself experienced it as something that actually did enable me to uh, create a completely different life from what I had been leading prior to the, uh, particularly the second analysis. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a book that I would have not been able to write 10 years ago. Um, wow. Okay. That, yeah, that's, that's marvelous because of course, as analysts, um, you know, uh, we, we hope that our, we, we hope that our patients, um, you know, come out of their analyses with, with the sense that, uh, they've, their lives have been, uh, in many respects, um, changed, um, and for, and for the better. Um, so another question we wanted to ask is just who, who is this in, in your mind? Who is this book for? Who's your, who's your ideal reader? Let's say. <laughs> well, it, I think it, this has shifted, um, after the book came out, when I sat down to write it, um, I, my primary audience was, I think, just sort of the general non-academic reader who might be interested in questions of, sort of basic questions about uh, the human condition, things like uh, what it means to become a character, what it means to talk about having a character, what it means to relate to other people, what it means to love, what it means to suffer and to lose and to be sad and uh, fall into states of melancholy and mourning. I wanted, I wanted to talk about all these things that I have been talking about academically to people, um, just sort of random general readers out there. And, um, and I kind of already said this, but I did not, what I did not expect was the fact that so many therapists and analysts seem to be picking up this book. And I have to say that one of the scariest things that anyone has ever said to me was, um, uh, right after the book came out, someone said, you know, I have been, I have been telling my, uh, uh, this was a, a therapist, um, he said, I've been uh, telling my patients to read your book. And I mean, that was a real moment of terror for me because uh, I mean, that question of like, oh my God, who am I to say anything about this uh, became really kind of concrete and tangible. Um, but it made me realize something. And I, I mean, when I had that conversation with the, with the therapist in question, um, I think that he conveyed to me why he was um, telling his patients to read this book. And um, it sort of became clear that um, there's something about the book that speaks to people who have um, suffered a lot. Um, and I, for kind of idiosyncratic personal reasons, I, I have always been able to talk about that side of human life in a way that seems to make sense to people. So now, thinking back, um, I would say that um, the book is aimed at readers who have suffered, <laughs> in a way. Um, well, I'm definitely a therapist that um, recommended your book to one of my... Uh, oh, no. See, this is like the scariest thing ever for an academic to hear. The thing is, I recommended... She's going on a long retreat, and I recommended two books to her because she, she kind of demanded um, that I... So anyway, I, I, I conceded. <laughs> one was called Undoing Perpetual Stress, and the other one uh-huh. was your book. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> But, you know, the, the aspect of your book that I was, that I really welcomed and one of the reasons I recommended it was, um, that it, it counters this discourse in society these days that's about eradicating symptoms, you know, mm-hmm. making them go away. Whereas your book is more, um, it addresses this idea of becoming, un, like, understanding them and becoming more tolerant of them. Uh, exactly. I wonder, yeah. And I wonder if you could, I'm really also really curious to hear more about the response to the book, but if you could speak to this idea of understanding and, and tolerating rather than eradicating symptoms. Uh, yeah, you know, I have found that that's, um, besides the suffering part, and of course it's related, um, that seems to be the part of the book that uh, readers are responding to uh, very strongly. When I get emails from readers, that's usually what they want to talk about. They will say something like, thank you so much for making it okay to feel anxious, or Thanks, thank you so much for making it um, okay to not be completely stress-free, because there's so much pressure in our society to be completely happy and carefree and 
and lead this sort of all-around all positive existence. And um, I think that there's a lot of pressure on people to just kind of shove aside their anxieties and, and stresses and sorrows. And uh, it seems it seems that there are a lot of people out there who actually are very intrigued by the by the opposite um, message. And um, I mean, I, I promise I won't go into the details of Lacanian psychoanalysis, but this whole point about accepting, uh, in a way, accepting symptomatic behavior mm -hmm. comes from Lacan. Um, um, Zizek even has a book called Enjoy Your Symptoms. Right. So there, there, there's this idea that there's something about actually embracing the things that are difficult for you, your most symptomatic enactments. There's something about those very um, things that make you who you are. And to the extent that you're trying to conjure them away, to the extent that you're trying to uh, make them go away, you're actually um, eroding what is distinctive and idiosyncratic about you. So it's a fairly basic Lacanian insight. And I I was trying to translate it into vocabulary that the, the non-Lacanian and the non-psychoanalytic reader might also be able to access. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I was reminded of uh, a book I like a lot, um, Joyce McDougall's Plea for a Measure of Abnormality, which of course tells you like how, where, where psychoanalysis ended up that we have to, um, she had to make a plea for a measure of abnormality. Um, mm -hmm. but, but even with it, even within psychoanalysis, I mean, you know, the struggle, um, against, uh, sort of reproducing normativity, certainly in American psychoanalysis is something that, um, we can, you know, we, 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 should never, as far as I'm concerned, should, here's the superego part, but we should never stop looking at, um, you know, how are, how, how can psychoanalysis, um, produce a, uh, uh, liberate the subject and how can psychoanalysis also be used to, um, to subjugate. So it, it's a, it's mm -hmm. an, it's a very, it's a very important, um, point. I mean, I, I wrote in my notes, I was like, Oh, she's championing a bit of madness, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and that that's a terrific thing. Um, I, uh, came upon, um, a little Virginia Woolf quote that, um, I think this is a, perhaps in what Alex Ross's piece on, on the Frankfurt school the other day in the New Yorker. Yeah. And the quote is one cannot live outside the machine for more, uh, for perhaps more than half an hour. <laughs> and I was thinking about your book and would you see your book as a sort of a blueprint for how to break out of, uh, of the hegemonic? Uh, absolutely, and that's where my critical theory training comes in. And I'm not when I say critical theory, I don't just mean uh, just mean the Frankfurt School, but more probably critical theory, um, contemporary theory. I mean, if there's one thing that contemporary theory is obsessed with, um, it's the idea of somehow subverting uh, the dominant social order, somehow undermining it. Uh, getting below it, beneath it, um, to somehow creating enclaves of freedom that are not completely run over um, by the dominant social order. And so there's a, there's a huge intersection between critical theory sort of broadly understood and some genres of psychoanalytic thinking such as uh, Lacan and also someone like Marcuse uh, from the Frankfurt School where there was this emphasis on on trying to figure out uh, what about human life was not completely colonized. Um, and again, Lacan is great for this because he has that whole notion of the real and the bodily drive that is never completely colonized that always sort of disrupts the facade of our polished personality or persona that we try to put up um, when we're interacting in the, in the social order. Um, and so, uh, yes, Besides the, besides the emphasis on um, increasing symptoms and anxiety and uh, unhappiness and and uh, sadness and all of those things, the other major theme of the book uh, definitely has to do with finding a way of being in the world where uh, something of you um, is still preserved. And that's a very difficult argument to make because a lot of contemporary theoreticians uh, give the impression that everything about human life is completely determined by the social order. So it's very difficult to talk about the ways in which, the possible ways in which we might not be completely determined. But I'm, I'm determined to talk about that. I'm determined <laughs> to talk about how we're not completely determined. Because otherwise it just seems hopeless. Yes. I, I was really struck by that. I know in your other book, Reinventing the Self, you get into that question about, um, I guess, a definition of the self. Um, 
I actually have a question that is a, has a quote from, from your book. So, um, but it's on this, this issue of the idea of the question of the, an authentic element of the self. Yeah. Um, and I, I got that there was a kind of implication in your argument that accessing an awareness of the thing, and we're getting, getting into the Lacanian waters here, um, or this element of the unruly in the self is somehow accessing what is, what might be more quote unquote authentic. Um, and the quote that I pulled was from page 35. You say, it's easy to become so infested by conformist forms of desire that we direct our energies to certain sites of desirability, career choices, partners, cars, shoes, merely because they are collectively recognized as desirable. We lose track of the specificity of our desire. So that was really this question of the specificity of desire and the thing. I've, wonder if you can comment on. <laughs> okay, so this is actually, this is sort of my thing. <laughs> this is what I'm obsessed about whenever I write academically. Um, so the Singularity of Being, which is the book that came out uh, before the Call of Character, is primarily on, primarily on Lacan, and the, the whole second half is about the thing and uh, and my obsession with the thing and um, my obsession with the specificity of human desire. And you're absolutely right that um, I'm linking a certain type of notion of authenticity or what Lacan would call the truth of desire mm. to this thing that he calls the thing with a capital T. Um, but the first thing I want to say is that um, what I'm trying to do with the notion of authenticity is something slightly different from what we usually mean by it in colloquial language. Um, uh, I'm not talking about some sort of a core notion of authentic um, identity. I'm talking about, as you said, I'm talking about something unruly, something um, slightly undisciplined. Um, and this has to do with the fact that Lacan in implicitly, uh, sometimes explicitly, but most of the time explicitly, he keeps in mind that there is such a thing um, uh, as... Um, uh, he would never use the word authentic, but he keeps talking about the truth of desire. And this truth of desire is precisely the kind of desire that goes against our social conditioning. And this this desire that goes against our social conditioning has to do with this thing that he calls the thing, which is this primordial um, non-object, this primordial phantasmatic uh, thing that we think that we have lost, although we actually never possessed it in the first place. Um and so the, what I'm saying with um, in this, this book and in some of my other work also is the idea that um, there are certain types of objects in the world. And when I say object, I, I sometimes mean a, mean a human, human, another human being. But I can uh, I, sometimes I mean just like um, inanimate objects. Um, and the argument is that there are certain kinds of things in the world, like. Uh, small T things in the world that somehow contain an echo of that original capital T thing that we think that we have lost. And when we come upon these kinds of objects, there's something about the authenticity or the truth of our desire that is animated in a way that is not animated by objects that are sort of mass produced and, and um, uh, sort of um, given to us by by our consumer culture, that there's something very specific about specific objects that draws us in very specific ways, and this has to do with the fact that they somehow on an unconscious level remind us of the thing, the capital T thing that we think we have lost. So this is one way of reading Lacan where I'm not going the sort of Shizekian suicidal route of, uh, you know, plunging into the, into the, um, of the thing. I'm, I'm trying to understand what it, what it is about the things sort of remaining luster in our lives that allows us to connect to certain objects in very specific ways. And, uh, when you think about uh, human beings um, as opposed to other animals. I mean, human desire is very specific. I mean, even though we are culturally conditioned to want some things, it's the case that we often fixate on very specific objects of desire, let's say a love object, sometimes someone who is completely not available, someone who is completely inappropriate for us. Yet there's something about about that about our desire that um, keeps fixating on that on that particular person, and that's what I'm trying to get at with this specificity of desire. And that the idea the idea is that there's something about that particular person that is on an unconscious level connecting to what we think we have lost phantasmatically, which is the Lacanian capital C thing. Mm -hmm. Can you can you say a little bit um, about? Uh, 
for the listeners um, about the thing and the repetition compulsion. How do you see the thing? How do you see the repetition compulsion? What is the relationship between them? How are they the same? How are they different? Because I think for non-Lacanian readers, people might be hearing, um, it, it might help to further clarify. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you're totally um, hitting at something important because in so, in so many ways, our obsession with certain types of objects um, has to do with the repetition compulsion. So um, the idea is that our, our desire is sort of circling about the thing in specific ways because we are always, we're hoping that, you know, the next object will give us that little little sliver of transcendence that we're looking for. It will give us that, that next, that little sliver of sublimity that we are looking for, uh, that is kind of the echo or the aura of the thing that we are hoping to recover in, in more mundane objects, the kinds of objects that we actually find in the world. And so, yes, it's absolutely the case that um, you could think about this circling of desire around the thing as a matter of the repetition compulsion, um, sort of seeking... Uh, similar kinds of objects incessantly and not being able to veer off course. Um, at the same time, um, from the Lacanian perspective, you could say that there is something absolutely truthful about um, the repetition compulsion. So when uh, Lacanians say, you know, um, enjoy your symptom or enjoy your symptom, in some ways they are saying, um, you know, there actually isn't ultimately a way to completely beat the repetition compulsion. I mean, you can you can try to work through it. You can get to a place where you can where you can relate to your repetition compulsion in a more productive way, in a way that is less hurtful to you. But ultimately, it is in some ways what defines you. It is uh, the core of your being, in a way. It is it is uh, uh, the most most quote unquote truthful part of your being. Um, and so. Um, so both of those, both of those meanings are uh, are absolutely in the mix when you're talking about the the thing. So I would never deny that it doesn't. I would never say that it does not have a relationship to the repetition compulsion. But I'm also saying let's not think about the repetition compulsion as a completely negative thing. Yes, we want to work through it. Yes, we want to get to a place where it's not as hurtful as it might be otherwise. But let's not also forget about the fact that it's talking to, it's speaking to something real. It's talking to or speaking to some real yearning within our being. And this yearning has to do with that original um, loss that Lacan keeps talking about, the lack in, in our being, uh, the loss of the thing. There's something... Uh, "Quote unquote authentic about that loss, um, and of course, again, Lacan would never use the word authentic. I'm just translating it into a slightly different vocabulary. So, so what you're doing, I think, um, in this in this book, is attempting to soften the harsh superego of the patient that says, "There I go again. Here I am, attracted again to the same disastrous, you know, situation that's going to lead me down the same garden path." I mean, because patients do attack themselves. Um, for their repetition, and at a certain point in analysis, the patient starts to attack themselves for their repetition compulsion when it becomes very clear as to what it is. And I like what you're, I like what you're saying because it is there's something softer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a softening um, uh, possibility, an embrace of the repetition compulsion um, rather mm-hmm. than, than just a you know full on um, fight against it, which will only, of course, raise the defenses. Um, so. Yeah, I, in some ways, uh, I mean, I definitely, uh, one of the things that I'm definitely saying is that you can develop a new relationship to your repetition compulsion so that you are more aware of the ways in which it functions, and you can also even develop kind of a humorous relationship to, yeah. to it in the sense that you're kind of laughing at yourself because you are once again finding yourself in that spot that you vow that you'll never find yourself in again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm trying to get away from the self-flagellating uh sort of uh, I'm always already guilty because I keep falling into this place because the fact is that we probably all will always keep falling into that place <laughs> in one way or another and um, the best we can sort of do is to is to reenact it in a in a manner that is not quite so damaging or um, slow so slaying or uh, self undermining or, or painful mm-hmm. You know, I think that's also a moment in a session or in treatment, especially when you get to the point where you can laugh at yourself. But that point where you say, here I go again, I'm doing it again. 
it's also an opening, I think, to think of yourself with some distance and, and, and with a critical mind. Exactly. Um, and that's, I mean, um, I'm thinking of Nietzsche here and I'm also talking, I'm thinking of Jonathan Lear, who, um, though not a Lacanian, is one of my favorite uh, psychoanalytic thinkers. And he he often talks about this sort of rewriting of fate um, in a way that Nietzsche also talks about it, um, where, and this goes back to what I was trying to say about the repetition compulsion and and the thing. Uh, I mean, both of them, both Nietzsche and Lear are basically getting at this idea that um, you can you can in some ways accept your fate while at the same time working to change it. <laughs> so it's not an either or choice. I mean, in some ways you don't have a choice about your particular psychic destiny. You don't have a choice about your fate per se, uh, but you still have wiggle room within it in the sense that you can try to reinvent it. You can try to try to improve it. You can make it um, better or what, uh, whatever vocabulary you want to use. Um, but there's also an aspect of just sort of increasing it. Um, uh, I mean, I, in some ways, working through uh, the way I, I understood it um, in analysis, in some ways, working through uh, was a manner uh, a matter of increasing uh, your fate while you were trying to also do something interesting with it. Mm-hmm. Could you? That seems to be kind of a bridge to this idea of. Um, as you talk about in the book, critical uh, faculties, um, a, a kind of bridge between the, the, the radical um, particularity of the self versus um, fitting into or being critical of the social order, I guess. You say at one point, the call of character is about liveliness of our spirit and also our critical faculties. And that mm-hmm. led me wonder, to wonder if you could explain what you mean by critical faculties and how they keep us from being immersed in the values of the cultural order. Uh, I, I think that in the same way that you can um, take some distance from your repetition compulsion and even develop a degree of humor about it, mm-hmm. um, you can also learn to take a degree of critical distance from uh, from your from the surrounding world. And one of the things that I'm getting at with the notion of the singularity of being or the call of character has to do uh, with sort of reactivating or reanimating that part of ourselves that is capable of taking that critical distance. And, you know, I started the book by kind of creating this trilogy of terms, um, identity, personality, and and character. And I'm juxtaposing character both to personality and identity in the sense that I'm saying that that's the most idiosyncratic, most unique uh, part of our being. And uh, the reason it's the most unique and idiosyncratic part of our being is that it has not been as fully socialized as the other two uh, components. And of, of course, here I'm again working with Lacanian notions. I'm working with the trilogy of um, the symbolic, the imaginary, and the real. So uh, the symbolic would be what I'm calling identity. The imaginary is what I'm calling personality. And then the real relates to what I'm calling character. And so the, the basic um, argument about the, the connection between individual singularity and critical um, faculties has to do with somehow being able to tap into that part of your being where the real still has something to to contribute. Um, and of course, our social order is trying to do its best to shut down the real because it's unruly and it's undisciplined and it will wreak havoc with our sort of uh, modern lives. Um, and um, so one of the things I'm saying that uh, saying is that to the extent that you can somehow conjure up something about the raw energies of the real, you're able to both cultivate your character in the sense that I'm defining it and also maybe um, put up a degree of resistance to to the dominant social order. And I'll just um, say one more thing about this, which is that this is a fairly um, um, Christavian um, way of appropriating Lacan um, because Kristeva often talks about, and the late Lacan also talks about this, um, she talks about the ways in which there's something about the intersection of language and affect, so the signifier and the real in Lacanian terms. There's something about that particular intersection that is uh, the space of aliveness and 
her way of thinking about psychoanalysis as a clinical practice has to do with um, allowing the patient to access that intersection because often we are sort of shut uh, shut off from um, what Lacan calls the real about from the bodily drive from from everything that is unruly about our lives and so she she sees the, the point of analysis to be to kind of resurrect that 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 space and and she reads that as a potentially rebellious potentially critical space um, so in some ways I'm following her. Um, in my in my reading of Lacan, in uh, in creating this this bridge between uh, personal singularity and kind of social critical capacity, mm-hmm. yeah, right? Kristeva really works with the, the ideas of the, the the semiology and the body are are you know are at one, right? I mean, she she links them. Um, they're always in my read of her. They're they're incredibly um, ineluctably. Uh, Linked. Um, I, uh, I just it was listening to you. I just thought, you know, why, uh, why do I love most of all people who've had long analyses, and what is the quality of mind that a person brings? And I, I was listening to your description um, and Richard's question, and it just made me realize, like, I love well analyzed people because of how we can, like, we really have a lot of fun. We can really. <laughs> We're really free to have fun with the disaster that that you know that's in front of us. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a, I have a good friend who's also uh, undergone analysis, and she's very she's very blunt. She's like, I, she's like I can't I can't stand talking to people who haven't gone to analysis because it's like I can't talk about anything that is interesting and fun because they just don't get it in the same way. And that that's exactly I mean a good analysis produces um, a kind of um, critical agility or um, Mm-hmm. Um, an intellectual agility, I think, that is just kind of priceless in our society, um, and uh, that you don't really find even in very, very highly intellectual people or intelligent people who haven't encountered psychoanalysis. So that's that's definitely uh, uh, maybe maybe the biggest uh, for me, at least, maybe, maybe the biggest advantages of psychoanalysis. Right. I mean, it was it was great to ask you the question. Like, we're like, well, can we ask her if she's had an analysis? And I'm like, anyone that's had an analysis usually says, yeah, I've had an analysis. <laughs> it's actually, if you had not had an analysis, that question would have been harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like bizarre, bizarrely, I was like, oh yeah, if we ask her if she's had an analysis, it's not she's confessing that she's been analyzed. She'd actually be confessing she hasn't been analyzed, and she wrote this book. That would be oh yeah, that that would be really embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that was our hardest. But listen, that was our hardest question. And if your answer was no, that you've not undergone an analysis. Like, oh boy! Oh boy! We had a flowchart set up. If, if yes, if no. Yeah, that, that was hard. <laughs> Which way to go? Because it had so it had so much um, meaning. If you've been analyzed or or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can see that. You know. So. Um, so okay, we another question that we had. Um, we're thinking about the the world of the self help books, and both of us have been um, um, abandoned um, by patients for um, self help books. They've left their analysis. Um, the lure of the self help book has um, you know cost us um, to lose um, some patients. They've they've left the dyad for the book, um, and. Um, so, you know, you've written a, a self-help book, a straight-up self-help book, uh, The Case for Falling in Love, yeah? And um, and you've written this book, which kind of straddles two worlds, right, of, you know, the academic and, we could say, to some degree, a, a self-help audience. I mean, you know, Richard did give it to a patient, as did Joe Reynoso, I think, believe we, uh, you know him, and I know he's given it to patients, too. So um, we're thinking about the role of the superego, as being sort of um, implicit or, you know, like a heavy-handed in a lot of self-help literature, right? The notion that one can perfect oneself, one can be better, a better version of whatever. I mean, which ends up colluding with a neoliberal project of self-transformation. Your title, your book, has the word worth in it. And the word worth did strike us as having a superego um, echo, uh, because there's values, you know, this is better, that's worthwhile, that's not. Um, doing something worthwhile can be a command. Um, so, and yet you do argue in this book very strongly for um, a lessening of uh, the superego, as you've just made clear to us. Um, so, 
do you think that um, a self-help book can can function in this culture um, as an object, as a thing that can um, soften an overly harsh superego? Ha. Um, uh, let me start, um, let me back up a little bit. Um, uh, just about the, the, um, the case of falling in love. It's embarrassingly uh, <laughs> often sold in the self-help section of bookstores, but it's actually, I wrote it as the anti, uh, I, in my mind I call it the, I call it the anti-self-help, self-help book. Um, so it does have self-help ish kind of components, but it's kind of a scathing critique of the self-help industry. Um, I was going um, after books. It's it's written for um, straight female um, readers specifically, and I am making relentless fun of um, the self-help books that are basically telling straight women how to catch a man. And my main point in that book is that this is like the most ludicrous way of thinking about romantic relationships you could possibly imagine because this has nothing to do with love. It's all about playing games and trying to find the easy answer. Um, and so um, I think that in my work overall, not just in, in um, the color character, but even in that kind of more self-helpy book, um, I was very much going against the ethos of the neoliberal uh improve your life by finding the right steps, um, by perfecting your strategy, all of that stuff. I just find it infuriating. Um, <laughs> so um, so that, but was your, that was but, your version of anti-Oedipus. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, on the question of work, that's actually a really, really good question. Um, huh. And I haven't thought about it before. You're right that um, the notion of worth has a super ego type of connotation. Um, but I think that I was probably coming from uh, I was coming from a very specific. Because I'm basically a philosopher. I mean, I'm someone who works at the at the intersection of contemporary theory, um, philosophy, continental philosophy, and psychoanalysis. And there's a certain type of um, uh, fairly humanistic philosophical tradition. So not at all the, the Frankfurt, school, Frankfurt School type of philosophical tradition, but a much more humanistic um, uh, philosophical tradition that is talking about the art of living and the, the life worth living. And all of these uh, philosophical approaches tend to uh, contextualize the term worth um, in a way that you understand that it has to do with a um, it has to do with a process of living. It has to do with you learning how to cope with the complete mess of life, um, the entanglements of life. Uh, so it doesn't have. I guess it, that's also a value of sorts, but it doesn't have. Uh, the same kind of connotation as you would usually have in our society where you talk about, you know, this is worth this and that, that's worth that. It has to do with, like, a notion of worthiness that has to do... It has to do with a notion of worthiness that is linked to the idea that it is um, sometimes worth the, the struggle to try to... Uh, do something very complicated rather than reaching for the, the for the easy answer, mm-hmm. which is precisely what the self help um, literature is trying to give us. I mean, we live in this completely utilitarian society, a uh, very pr- pragmatic society where people are always looking for the easiest way to do to do things, and the self help industry is kind of feeding that desire. And so, when I'm talking about worth, I'm talking about the exact opposite of that uh, and saying let's consider the worth in not taking the, the easy way out let's consider the worth in actually struggling with things and crabbling with things and entering into the complexity of things and entering into the midst of midst of life um, as someone like Levinas might put it um, so I think it's a different uh, inflection on that term worth I'm glad sense. we asked yeah, yeah I'm glad we asked yeah yeah well, this, I mean, this certainly gets to the, the notion of the call in, in your book. And we were both really struck by um, your use of that term, the call. You say the call rescues us from being engulfed by conventional definitions of the good life. Um, mm-hmm. can, you talk, can you talk about the, your use of the term call? It struck us as really unique. We, were, we couldn't come up with um, anyone else using the term the way that you have. Can you talk about uh-huh. the analogy of it and... And who or what is calling us? Yeah, it's um, um, 
who is it that is talking about the call in psychoanalysis? Um, it's slipping my mind right now. But this is, uh, again, this is something that is not completely unusual in more philosophical writing, and that's probably where I'm coming from. Uh, most sort of explicitly I'm coming from um, Alan Badiou's work, um, The Notion of the Event. And that's like in chapter, I think, seven um, of the book. Uh, Badiou has this notion of what he calls the truth event. And of course, it's very closely linked to what Lacan, what Lacan calls the truth of desire. Uh, Badiou is basically, a, a, well, he's a philosopher who um, draws on Lacan quite heavily in his thinking. And so he talks about the truth event as something that suddenly kind of erupts in in the in the midst of our everyday life and just kind of forces us into a completely different place from what uh, we are used to being in. Like um, he basically has these two levels of existence. There's our everyday kind of pragmatic existence where you we're just kind of trying to get through the day and uh, trying to plan the next week or the next month or whatever. And then there's what he calls the event, which is basically a matter of being called. Um, in a way that cannot be refused, if something so something speaks to you so powerfully that you cannot refuse it. Um, and of course, I have a whole other book called *The Summons of Love*, where I talk about um, the, the kind of event of love, of falling in love in those terms. And one of the things I'm trying to do with that is once again um, counter the pragmatic notion of, you know, relationships. Relationships should be level-headed and pragmatic and uh, um, you know, uh, any kind of aspiration toward transcendence or sublimity is just uh, mumbo-jumbo and we should learn to approach uh, love in these strategic ways. And I, I keep saying, no, that's, that's crazy. I mean, there's something about the event of falling in love that is an event in our lives that does actually transform us, that takes us to a completely different a different way of living, at least momentarily. I mean, it doesn't necessarily last. And when when um, Fabio talks about the event, he places emphasis, a lot of emphasis on how we can betray the event, how we can kind of uh, come to not live through the implications of the event. Um, so uh, not all events are things that will endure, not all events are things that will um, lead to some sort of ultimate transformation. But at that moment when you fall in love, it is an event in your life. Um, and there are other kinds of events that can happen to you that I'm kind of categorizing, uh, categorizing under that a notion of being called to something so strongly that um, you cannot say no, even if the even when the pragmatic world around you is telling you that that's a crazy decision, you should not do that. That's just insane. Like I remember when I was in grad school way back when I had already invested like six years of my life into in doing the social sciences, and then one day I walked into actually a feminist like feminist post-structuralist psychoanalytic class here at Harvard um, and that one day of listening to the professor changed everything and I'm like, okay, I have to get out of the social sciences, I have to get into the humanities, I have to do theory, this is what I'm meant to do and it created this havoc in my life. I mean, I had invested so much time and energy and I, um, I had full funding from Harvard to do the social science degree and when I switched fields I lost all this funding, I had to work like crazy to make the money, to make up for the funding that I had lost and so people around me were saying like that's just insane like what are you doing you could just finish your degree in three years and that would be it but there was something about that moment of being called to something different that was so powerful for me that I, I could not resist it and looking back it's the best thing that I ever did I mean I would have been a totally 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 uh, substandard social scientist and at least as a critical thinker as a human you know theoretician in the humanities I have been able to say some things that uh, people seem to relate to. I would have never been able to do that in the social sciences because I would have just been bad at it. Right. You know, um, I'm, I just realized that my, my, my patients that don't do online dating are approaching it from a Baudouian critique. They're saying that they don't want to um, do online dating because they want an event. Uh -huh. They think that online dating is somehow going to curate the experience and they'll lose the event. It's uneventful. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Um, should I ask a question? Oh yeah. I, 
Um, we have so many questions and you're completely delightful to talk to. Um, so I wanted to ask, a, this is a really kind of funny question, but, um, so I'm, I'm looking at the book right now. I'm looking at the cover and it's got this pale blue. It's got a lighthouse with a bright yellow light coming out. You know, that's, that's the, the artwork on the cover. And what struck me when I got the book, um, having called your publisher and, you know, I'd like to get a copy of this for an interview. And I said, Oh my God, doesn't this book, doesn't this book look like um, uh, Bolas is um, being a character, psychoanalysis and self-experience, like at a visual level? Are you familiar with, with that book? I believe you quote him a couple times in your um, in, in this book. Um, Which book? Uh, I didn't hear you on that. Which book are you talking about? Bolas is being a character, psychoanalysis. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I love that book. Well, in its first edition, I want you to know, if you didn't have a copy of it, Richard and I both noted that it's exactly the same colors. Are you serious? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> it was really, and I was like, the call of character. And I thought, when's the last time I saw character? Um, the you know, in in a in a book that is uh, concerns itself with things psychoanalytic, and of course, Bolas's book, um, who we've interviewed here, and it's a terrific interview. But it, that that came um, immediately uh, to mind. Um, but. Uh, so now, now a question about really thinking about Bolas, who is one of the one of the few clinicians, you know, that you quote directly um, in the call of character. Um, Bolas writes about um, trauma here and there, and he writes that, quote, the effect of trauma is to sponsor symbolic repetition, not symbolic elaboration. And in this book, you take up a position on trauma, um, which might be a most overused uh, word uh, at this point, uh, or that it's, it's, could lose its meaning, but you suggest that out of trauma can come something rich and profound. Um, my sense is that you're steeped in psychoanalytic literature of the 21st, late 20th century. And I wanted to ask, what do you make, if anything, of um, the more current embrace of trauma? Um, because it is more recent. It's a return, I think, um, by psychoanalysis. Any thoughts about that? Uh, did you say, uh, just to make sure that I heard you correctly, the recurring what of trauma? Well, just the, no, no, a current, the, the current embrace or a re uh, yeah. of trauma by, um, you know, late 20th, early 21st century, um, psychoana- psychoanalysis. Yeah, that's, again, that's a, that's a thorny question because, um, it is. You, you could definitely make the argument that, uh, in some ways it has become commercialized, that it has become part of the symbolic order, the dominant order, um, and it has been watered down in a way, um, that, uh, that sort of takes away from, from its meaning. Um, at the same time, uh, I think that the, the kind of recurrence of, of the term and the fact that so many people are fascinated by it may have to do with the, with the fact that um, there is some something inherently traumatic about human life. And, I mean, again, this is something that Lacan was very good at theorizing, that there's, a, there's an intrinsic traumatization to human life. And now I want to be very careful here because this is something that I... Um, I do in every book of mine because I don't want to be misunderstood as saying that uh, we are all equally traumatized because that's obviously not the case. I mean, some people are much more traumatized than others and some people are sort of socially traumatized by things like racism or homophobia or sexism. Um, And so one of the things that I do in pretty much everything, all the books I've written, is to distinguish between two different levels of trauma um, and and to, to, I, I try to be very careful to not imply that um, I'm like leveling leveling the difference between these two two different levels. But at the same time, um, if you are sort of following the Lacanian uh, line of reasoning and thinking about the so-called human condition, um, I think that there's something about the notion of trauma that speaks to people because everyone has some notion of what that means. Um, and this is also, I guess, um, an insight that was uh, common... Um, among the Frankfurt School thinkers, um, 
as well, and a lot of critical thinkers today. And I, uh, one of the theoretical fields that I teach at the moment, have been teaching for the last uh, few years, is queer theory. And and discourses of trauma are very central to all of these theoretical approaches, and that's because they are trying to understand something about the difficulties of the human condition and precisely trying to get away from this um, emphasis on let's just be happy and let's just be productive and let, let's be good neoliberal subjects who, um, who, who streamline their lives in such a way that um, they are able to cover over the, the traumatized uh, portions of being. And uh, I guess what I'm saying is that there is still something, um, even even in people who are living that kind of a lifestyle, uh, like I personally know people who are living that kind of neoliberal pragmatic dream in a way, but even in those people, there is still some sort of a, uh, some sort of an underlying understanding or some sort of a connection to mm-hmm. this other part of human life that is not that straightforward and easy. Um, and when they hear about trauma and they hear about lack and they hear about various forms of suffering, there's something about those kinds of concepts that that still speak to them. So maybe that's one explanation for why why it's so prominent in our society. It's like people are hungry for something that they don't know how to name maybe and trauma has become the name for it, Mm. which doesn't mean that it hasn't been appropriated and commercialized and made into this mainstream trope. But I think that there's also some sort of a genuine part to it that is still, there's a glimmer of something that people are yearning for that they may not be able to name. Mm. That has to do with the complexity of human existence rather than the easy answers. Um. Well, we're at a little over 50 minutes, and we'd love to continue to talk to you. I think both of us are having, we're having a great time. Yeah, it's a really lot of fun. Yeah, um, but I think, but we do have to stop because um, we do the 50-minute hour here, and uh, obviously okay. we want us to go over, So, <laughs> which is something we don't do in our practices, right? So, um, right. anyway, th- really, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you for speaking with us. Um, it was it was great. Um, we'd love to speak with you again at New Books and Psychoanalysis. Um, whatever your um, you know, if you'd like to speak with us, we'd like to speak with you. <laughs> so um, you know, send send me your books and um, to continue um, the conversation. Um, and any last words, Richard? Well, I don't know whether to look for your work in the self help section now. <laughs> <laughs> It's embarrassing. Uh, it's particularly embarrassing because I have to tell my, uh, when I'm talking to my students, and I have to disclose the fact that I have a book in the self-help section. But it's a fact. That kind of undermines my authority as a professor. Yeah, it's a perfect intervention. It's, a, it's an intervention. Like I just, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, pick, pick this one off the shelf. It's got a great title. Why not? You know? And, uh, <laughs> and the, the woman reading it will get like, you know, she will develop the, criti- the it will help her to develop that critical capacity that, um, I think uh, you, you and uh, we, I could say, value. Yeah. yeah? Absolutely. All right. So this is Tracy Morgan and Richard Briette signing off for New Books in Psychoanalysis. Um, thanks for listening and uh, stay tuned, um, listeners, for more. Mm-hmm.